0: Dear listener, welcome to Season 2 of JobsCast. This is your host, Pat Bubble. I met today's guest, Jason Gotts, in person for lunch at a Japanese restaurant in New York City in late January of last year. I had emailed him out of the blue, and he was gracious enough to make time to meet with a random fan. It was the week that Kobe Bryant and his daughter, Gianna, and seven others, Peyton Chester, Sarah Chester, Christina Mauser... John Altabelli, Carrie Altabelli, Alyssa Altabelli, and pilot Ara Zabaya had all died in a plane crash. I went to Madison Square Garden that night to watch the Knicks with my friend Drew, one of my oldest and best friends, and it was special to be able to mourn there in an arena full of hoops fans and feel the bomb of togetherness with so many people I didn't know who were all feeling the same way. The tragedy of that plane crash marked the beginning of what would proceed to be a memorably difficult year in which even those of us who somehow managed to thrive still likely had to deal with the pain of having many of life's small, simple joys suspended, or at least curtailed or made much more complicated by logistical difficulties and health protocols. Last month, so about a year after Kobe's death, I lost someone very important to me, my grandfather, whom I'm named after. I encourage you all to Google Pat Solano, S-O-L-A-N-O, and you'll find information about the amazing life Grandpa lived. I mentioned his passing and Kobe's, and staggeringly, the deaths of nearly 2.5 million people around the world, about a fifth of whom were from the U.S., despite this country only making up about 4% of the global population, as well as the unquantifiable deaths of so many of our plans and pleasures and privileges, because... Well, my sense is that there's just been too much to really feel. And when many of us were feeling last year or are feeling now, uh, it, it was and is often in an actively negative or, or avoidant mode of feeling. And of course, the processing of feelings has a unique time signature and expression for everyone. But given that in this moment, You might be driving or doing a house chore or maybe just taking a rest. I thought it might be a good opportunity to press pause for a minute. And to the extent that you can, to the extent that you want to, perhaps you can begin to feel for a moment now. Be with yourself. Be with your feelings without judgment or deflection or suppression. This is not intended to be a full-blown guided meditation. I'm sure you're all on insight timer now since COVID, but... This is more just an invitation to take a mindful beat and be with yourself. I know that I have a tendency to not create enough space for my feelings, and I know I'm not alone in that. So I'll shut up now and for 60 seconds, let you be present to what you're feeling. Okay, today's guest is the very talented and thoughtful Jason Gotts. Jason hosted one of my favorite podcasts, the now defunct but still available to listen to podcast Think Again, on which Jason had conversations with the likes of Neil Gaiman, Ethan Hawke, David Sedaris, Marlon James, Parker Posey, Jared Diamond, Terry Gilliam, Eve Ensler, and Ibram Kendi, to name a few luminaries. Jason's latest podcast, Clever Creature, is a sparkling coalescence of music, narrative, and conversation that I highly recommend. In its specific structure, which Jason and I talk about in some detail, Clever Creature really defies comparison. Please check it out. And honestly, you might even want to do that right now before listening to this conversation, as it'll give you more context. Okay, onto the conversation. Jason and I discuss creativity, collaboration, identity, artistry structure, wisdom, doing it yourself versus doing it with others, and much more. You can follow Jason at jgots J-G-O-T-S, on Twitter, and you can follow this podcast on Twitter at jobscast podcast. Hope you enjoy, and as always, feel free to contact me with guest ideas or comments or criticisms at pat.bubble at gmail.com, P-A-T dot B-U-B-U-L at gmail.com. I now present to you my conversation with Jason Gotts. Jason, welcome to Jobscast.
1: Hi, Pat. Glad to be here.
0: So Jason, where am I finding you now on this day, December 16th, a hump day in terms of your creative thinking, creative processes, creative pots on the stove? What's going on with you creatively these days?
1: Yeah, so I'm in Queens, New York, in Astoria, New York, and we're about to get hit with a big winter storm. And there's the delicious anticipation that goes along with this because we may have more snow than we've had in a long time. So I'm ensconced in my cozy, warm apartment looking out at the pearl gray sky. Um, And it happens to be the day that I recorded the ninth and final conversation for the second season of my new independent podcast, Clever Creature.
0: Congratulations.
1: Yeah, thank you. And this one with the poet and essayist Ross Gay, who I come off of every conversation feeling like the person that I've been talking to is the most delightful human being that I've ever met. <laughs> so I, I was gonna say, Yeah, so I was going to say he's a delightful human being, which I think he is. Um, I think he adds much beauty and wit and intelligence to the world, but with the caveat that I always feel that way after (laughs) after an interview. But as far as my creative process goes, my show Clever Creature involves three parts, basically. There are audio fiction stories, songs, and conversations, and all of them are in some way related to inspired by wrapped around a single word in each episode in the first season i kind of did everything in a big jumble and i kind of did it all very very quickly and in a way that was on purpose because i was doing something new which was to put this sort of variety show out in the world that gathers a lot of kinds of things that i've done some more formally some more professionally some more you know amateurly or privately or piecemeal into one space. And so in the first season, I kind of held what I think of as like a creative gun to my head to do everything really quickly under a kind of time duress, writing a story in one day, writing the song the same day, producing the next day, da-da-da-da-da. Number one, to create a kind of spontaneity and decentering that I thought might be helpful for the work. But number two, really just to make sure that I got it all done and didn't kind of collapse into an existential despair or soup in the middle of it. Um, This season, because I've done it once and I wanted to see what would happen, I'm really taking my time and I'm really letting air and breath into the thing. And so I'm doing each thing as a discrete thing. And so, you know, now these conversations are done. After the, in the beginning of the new year, I'll turn my attention to the stories and and then to the songs and, and so on. So that, I guess... I guess that's a very broad answer for where you find me creatively. I could say more, but I think we can draw a line under that.
0: That's a great start. And I'd like to dig into some of it. I'm wondering if you could speak more about the spontaneity and decentering in relation to having some amount of format and structure. Because I think this, on the surface, there is this sort of tension or binary between structure and discipline and routine and automation, and on the other hand, inspiration and spontaneity and afflatus. So how do you <laughs> think about this interaction of, of these seemingly dueling sides of the creative process coin?
1: Well, as first of all, I have to say as a lover of of words, I'm very glad that you used the word afflatus just now. <laughs>
0: As it was on the tip of my tongue, I was thinking, is this the right word? I'm going to go for it.
1: While I consider myself sometimes a bit of a walking dictionary, that's one I don't even have any idea what that means. So what does it mean?
0: I'm going to say creative inspiration. Okay. All right. I I'm had to look, look it up. It up a divine this. creative impulse or inspiration. Awesome. a Flatus. Okay. it's
1: It's gone into the memory banks. Now, <laughs> so yeah, I think for me anyway, the last few years have been about developing trust and patience and a kind of acceptance of faith, as it were, in, I don't want to say my own creativity, that sounds so precious, but like in the fact that it's going to be there for me when I need it, that I I don't have to like rush or worry or all the time create these kind of prison-like structures of discipline in order to ensure that I'll be alive within them. Now, structure is good, and, I mean, my show has a structure. You know, I'm playing with the structure of having a single word in each episode and trying to write to that word. There's a container, and there are boundaries. But, you know, I think a lot of times, like, discipline, I don't know, for myself anyway, sometimes in my life trying to make art, I have created structures that were, in fact, too constricting Mm -hmm. that didn't allow me enough space to kind of play within them out of fear that if I didn't have such a tightly built architecture, that it wouldn't get done or it wouldn't be good or it would fail somehow. And some of this may also be a function of age, um, maybe growing older as well, and just being kinder to oneself. Over the past year, I've been writing and revising a memoir, which is the longest sustained bit of creative work that I've ever done. And I feel like when you've written something as lo- you know that's book length and then you go back to it with all the interruptions and all the time that comes between writing a sentence and revisiting it and you find that you're able to restructure it, things, you're able to think about it, you're able to add to it, you know that it doesn't that you're not just such a completely different person that the thing is utterly, utterly alien and unworkable. I think that then that gives you a kind of earned faith that you can keep leaving a certain amount of space in the work.
0: Mm, That's interesting. How do you dispense with the question, what is your job? (laughs) I personally balk at the question. I don't think it's particularly interesting, but given that it's one of the most common questions we ask people, so what do you do? how, How do you go about approaching that ask?
1: Yeah, well, at the at the risk of bloviating, let me take this all the way back to the years right after college. I'm 48 years old. And when I started out in the working world, I can't say when I started my career because my career has been many things and it's taken many twists and turns. And I have not had a single, you know, clear. I mean, there are unifying threads, but it hasn't been an obvious through
0: line. Yeah, you haven't climbed the company ladder.
1: No, nor even the like um, David Foster Wallace ladder of I'm going to be a novelist, you know, deciding that at the age of 20 or whatever, not to compare myself to David Foster Wallace who uh, you know is a wunderkind and polymath and everything. But um yeah, so it used to really bother me. And it used to result in very uncomfortable conversations where I'd find myself either superciliously trying to reject the question or apologizing in some roundabout way for what I am or answering in such a convoluted way that no one could understand what the fuck I was talking about. And what sort of happened is just that like in the last, I don't know, five to seven years, things coalesced in such a way that I can accurately say I'm a writer and a podcaster. And then if people want to ask more probing questions about that, then I can start to unpack it. But that most accurately reflects how I've made my money to the extent that I've made it and how I kind of identify. I mean, for me, it's really important. And we can get into why this is But just for me personally, it's really important that there be a unity of life and work. Because you spend so much time at work uh, in the sense of the job where you make your money, I became very obsessed with this, you know, again, maybe maybe it was eight, ten years ago, making sure that there was integrity between what I think of as my life and my work because I don't do very well when there's disintegrity, when what I do for a living doesn't feel like something I'm proud of or that kind of expresses what I want to be in the world in, in some fundamental way.
0: Yeah, that resonates. It takes me to a corporate job. I was able to briefly hold down. I think I made, I made it through seven months. This was in 2010, shortly after the financial crisis. I graduated from college in 2009, and I got a job in project management at Netcracker Technology Corporation in okay. uh, Waltham, Massachusetts. And I, I remember my hair was quite long at the time, and I was the only person in the office who had long hair. And word got down through uh, my boss's boss that the CEO had seen me, and this was, it's not that small of a company, I mean, I think there were there were over 500 employees in that office space, and there were five or six offices um, around the world. The CEO was in this office, and I guess mm. he just made some remark about, like, what's up with the new guy's hair? And uh, I remember it got to me, and I remember wow. thinking, this is not the place for me. And not because I was, it wasn't about, you know, the hair was the tip of my literal icebergs. I think there's a performative element to all of the spaces we're in. And I don't think performative, I don't think of that as a valenced word. I think it could be, well, it could be positive, negative, or neutral. Right. But, okay. Right. But I think in this case, I was expected to perform in a pretty like caricatured sort of cookie cutter professional manner, with like my khakis and button down tucked in shirt and short hair, right. And right. And I couldn't do it. And then you know a few years later, I got into English tutoring, which has been my primary livelihood. And I found that the niche I'm in in the English tutoring world is I, I sort of work with um, advanced speakers of other languages and help. A lot of them are in PhD programs or their postdocs, and I just find that I'm really able to be myself, and I learn about the fascinating research they're doing, and I feel like I could bring my combination of creativity, sensitivity, empathy, artistry, even, if I may dare include that word. Um, Again, we're always sort of different selves, slightly, you know, like I'm not talking to you now exactly how I'd talk to my mom or my partner, et cetera, but- But I do think I, I really realized then at twenty three that 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 job demanded a regular performance of me that that I wasn't cut out to do
1: yeah and you know there are like several layers to this I mean one of which is the extent to which you feel free to be yourself in the office right and that can come down to performative elements like how you speak, how your hair is. You know, how your clothing is like the extent to which you feel or do not feel kind of narrowed eyes upon you yeah. um, uh, on the basis of how you feel comfortable just being, you know, the extent to which you have to tie yourself up in knots uh, to try to fit in. That's one thing. And then there's the question of sort of the range of your abilities, like what Mm. it is that you're fully capable of doing in the world and the extent to which that job taps into that, right? And in in the case of the English teaching there, you know, it sounds like you've also got the element of, like you're interested in other people, you're interested in traveling probably literally and and definitely metaphorically. So you get to, you know, have all of these encounters and they're one-on-one encounters and there's a certain intimacy to that, you know, So, so yeah. In the company I worked in for the longest that I ever worked at any company, which is Big Think, which is a kind of like an online think tank of big ideas, I had to carve out the performative space for myself. For a long time, I was not sure how to be myself there because I was nervous. Like. What if I'm not good enough? You know, I don't know this world yet. You know, it took me a long time to start to like understand the lay of the land there. And then I started kind of becoming a bit of a like a loud mouth. And I'm not saying this to like brag in some way, but just kind of pushing for elbow room in terms of like when I disagreed with things or when I had, you know, different ideas or, you know, just finding the space not not to be a. Not to be impossible to work with, hopefully, but to have enough space around me that I felt I could I could breathe, and th- and that was an ongoing process over a long time that involved quitting at one point even and getting rehired later. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's a that's a good bridge to another question I wanted to ask you about collaborating versus working on solo projects. I think when you talk about, so I'm sure the irony wasn't lost on you that this organization, Big Think, for you, in some sense, the organizational structure must have felt narrowing or confining. Otherwise, you wouldn't have had to do that sort of fighting for the elbow room that you wanted to be more Jason, be more yourself. Right. But can you speak to how you go about collaborating versus working individually? And I'll just add, given that you and I both have podcasted, currently podcast. I'm wondering too, as I guess a sub question of this, I think about right now, I mean, it's super fun to talk to people. I'm very curious about people. Uh, a conversation is a form of collaboration, but it's interesting because I think behind the scenes with podcasting and certainly everyone has their own setup and you can also do this with the team or you could do it yourself, but right. there is a lot of work that generally goes into it. If you want the finished product to sound decent, there's a lot of editing time, um, right? There's a lot of all kinds of possibilities for manipulation of audio now. And it's interesting. I don't dislike that work, but I got into this more for the social component and to be able to highlight interesting lives
1: yeah you don't you're not you don't want to be a technical producer but you have to be yeah yeah yeah. right
0: and and yeah and and there's a and i guess the point being there that there's like a solitary nature to to the current way that i that i do that so yeah that's a that's a set of set of thoughts i'd love you to respond to
1: yeah yeah no i love that question um i mean because i think about this a lot i want to start by saying that i mean i started i started out in theater in some ways, which is a, which is an inherently collaborative art. I mean, that was the fir- my first art, like in high school. And I loved that. I loved that ensemble work, but then I don't know at what point things shifted, but somehow it shifted for me into the kind of like solo auteur mode with, with a lot of the, you know pretensions that go along with that like in in <laughs> in college and where like I started doing a lot of songwriting in college I write songs with lyrics and it's something I've continued to do off and on uh, you know since um but it, the kind of like when a song comes and now sometimes for the new um show new podcast but I got like in my 20s, I was in this mode of the kind of like, I think partly just because I was like a withdrawn and and emotional and isolated person. Right. So I got in the I got in the mode of the like, you know, the Be- the Beethoven mode of like the guy, the the sort of angsty guy alone in a room with a notebook or a guitar and didn't know how to collaborate with anyone, didn't trust other artists, feared them in some ways, you know, because I was still trying to like work out my own insecurities. And then in my professional career, there have been times when I got to work in an ensemble mode. Actually, this wasn't really professional, but I started a theater company in D.C. Um, when I was around 25 and directed a production of O'Neill's The Hairy Ape. And that was one of the most glorious experiences of my life. I mean, I was in a leadership leadership role, directing, but, but it was very much an ensemble production. And it was so joyful to work with these incredibly talented actors and really, like, recognize that there was so much that they could do that I had nothing to do with, you know? Like, I could elicit it out of them or help to, or I could hinder it, but I couldn't create it on my own and that is glorious but then in a lot of my like adult professional life it's been just me i mean think again my former podcast big think was happy to have it as long as it didn't cause them too much trouble or cost them too much money i mean it was an add-on to their business it wasn't feeding the bottom line at least not in the beginning and so well no not ever i mean it was never a substantial part of their business in, from a monetary standpoint, it was something that kind of like brought their brand into a new arena of podcasting where they didn't exist. And it it got a lot of listeners, but, you know, they were very focused on financial survival. And so it was a nice to have, you know, so it was just basically me. And then I had along the way, I got to hire an engineer now and again, But like they wouldn't be in the same room with me. I would pass the audio to them. They would go work in isolation and come back to me. And this season in Clever Creature, for the first time, I'm trying to do a little more collaboration. I mean, just in general in my life, I feel like I'm trying to open up more to collaboration because I'm ready for it. It's just more a matter of opportunity at this point. And so I'm trying to make those opportunities. And so... For example, I've asked for the songs in season two. Most of them, I'm having I'm asking friends to write the music, and then I will add vocals and lyrics, and I'll be talking with them about it. In one case, I'll probably jam with my friend Drew instrumentally, you know, before he makes the those instrumentals. And then, likewise, writing the book has been a collaboration with my editor, Peter where I've really had to open myself up to his comments, his critiques, try to incorporate them, and they've been incredibly valuable. And I, I think it's essential and it's invaluable to be able to put your trust in other artists. You know, I just think it adds, it adds so much more to the work. It infinitely expands the range of possibilities. And honestly, for me, it was just first a matter of temperament, and then once I had enough security and sense of well-being, it was a matter of circumstance that for the most of the time I've worked alone.
0: Well, I'm glad to find you at a moment where you're about to be embarking on more collaboration. That sounds fun and healthy, I think. Um, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think about the the sort of magnetism of screens and, you know, the oft-remarked-upon idea that they atomize us and divide us even while they connect us too. And I think about DIY culture and I guess I just feel like when you kind of zoom out to the big picture in the US and I think in a lot of the world, so many issues I think are are in part related to almost excessive individualism and not enough of an emphasis on communalism or collaboration or whatever form of togetherness you want to arrange. And, and I also want to say, too, that I certainly don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I think that there are ways to introspect and reflect and get alone time and try to ask and answer deep questions to oneself. But I don't know. I, I think everything ultimately um, <laughs> comes out better and is healthier and more fun when there's a social element. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I think that I think that it's not
1: just better for creativity. It's a it's a question of one's fundamental orientation toward toward life, toward other people. Right. America right now is in a you know very complicated situation and a lot of our problems i feel like have to do with this rugged individualism yeah. and this lack of this lack of sense of interdependence you know yeah. um we are so i mean it's so extreme that the slightest hint of anything that might smack of caretaking for one another is immediately labeled socialism right. which is a, a bad word by its detractors and yeah and like for me kind of getting out of my own psychological hole which again i think had a lot to do with just temperament and and my own upbringing and just demons i was wrestling with as a younger person for real i mean i had a lot of shit to work out on my own but that having happened, I'm finding that the impulse to, to connect is happening not only in the art, but in every, in everything. I'm teaching again for the first time in years. And this year I was very, very active politically in a way that I've never been in my life. Mm. I mean, I think a lot of people were mobilized by this election in ways that they hadn't been before, but I mean, I was not, I wasn't raised by activists and I had a kind of a, a fear-based precious intellectual standpoint which was that the sphere of politics is a sphere of binaries things are very clunky and very yeah. often very stupid in the sphere of politics you know you you know it's a or b and so i didn't want to engage like i wanted to remain in the realm of of subtlety and uncertainty and and all of that and so for the first time this year though like i really I really, you know, and I'm like I said, I'm 48 years old, so like it's about fucking time. But, you know, for the first time, first time this year, I I really saw a sense of my collective responsibility, my responsibility to the collective to do what I could in terms of, you know, calling to mobilize voters, writing letters, you know, anything I could do to try to, um, you know, make a difference on these things that seem important for all of us.
0: Same in a lot of ways. Jason, I want to back up to Think Again, A Big Thing podcast, which for listeners, if they're unfamiliar, that was Jason's previous podcast before Clever Creature. And I know you did it, Jason, for quite a long time. I was a big fan. And that's ultimately how I found you. I reached out. um, We got to know each other a bit. I want to connect that project you did, that long-term podcast project, to some of this conversation we're having about individualism and communityism or collectivism. I know that a lot of times authors would come on your show because they had recently written a book or published a book and so right. there's the there's the promotional component for them. And I gathered from listening to many of your conversations that you would often read the book. So you it seems to me you've probably consumed quite a few books from doing I think again. Sure. I want to ask you about how you feel that that influx of information informed or conditioned your own kind of creative voice or vision mm. did you sometimes feel like mm. you were you know taking in so much that you were then almost getting lost in other people's deep content or do you feel that you found a way to sort of incorporate it in a kind of whole way
1: definitely the latter i mean for better or worse my motivations in in booking guests for think again were very often selfish, hopefully in the best possible sense, you know, in the sense that the particular is also the universal. So that if you follow the things that you're passionate about and you put them out in the world, they will hopefully have more resonance than if you are simply creating something generic that's meant to please everybody from a market standpoint. So I invited people to the show for the most part. I mean, it was a weekly show and I had to have a lot of guests and sometimes I was backed up and to the wall and whatever, but for the most part, people that I really wanted to talk to or whose ideas I found interesting for one reason or another. And far from finding it overwhelming in terms of their ideas taking over my own, I think it was collaboration in the best possible sense where you start to see that the same ideas come up again and again in different forms forms they don't belong to people in the marketplace of like leadership publishing for example I guess ideas belong to people and so they give them acronyms you know like life means leading with intent and friendly energy or so you know or whatever
0: um I hope no one has used that one
1: (laughs) I know I'm sure they have or they will so in that world it is about ownership of ideas and that was kind of like the other side of what Big Think was doing um, you know, was promoting a lot of that kind of content where it's like, okay, this person has come up with this system and it's this thing and it's this useful nugget of information that you won't get anywhere else. And I found that with the the writers and the thinkers uh, that I was talking to, the ones who were major influences on me, Martin Haglund, who is a philosophy professor at Princeton, I believe, who wrote a book called This Life, which is basically talking about what we do with the time of our lives, the the time that we have allotted to us in life and how that interacts with capitalism. I mean, I guess it's like it would broadly be considered a post-Marxist or neo-Marxist book, but it was a, a brilliant and unique and, and deep, deep dive into the value of our lives. Or Robert McFarland's book, Underland, which looked at the underground spaces in the earth from underground caves to what happens when ancient glaciers and permafrost melt and release their ancient prisoners in the form of bones and even bacteria and viruses. You know, what happens when the past comes up to meet us and all of these, all of these very sort of deep meditations through nature on, on who we are and the world that we live in. I guess, you know, one picks and chooses, right? I mean, it's sort of, you know, impossible to avoid narcissism in that sense. I think you are drawn to the ideas that you're drawn to because you are drawn to those, you know, and and then others get discarded. But the ones that I was drawn to definitely like knitted themselves together into a tapestry that I refer to time and again. And I feel myself then, even when I produce something ostensibly new, which echoes something that I've heard before, I feel myself in a community or a kind of collaboration with those others.
0: Right, and situating oneself within a lineage of beauty and creativity is marvelous. That's a, that's a great part of being live.
1: I, I, I think it's important, you know, it's something I always liked about jazz and like some certain hip hop artists you know, was the way that they would explicitly give thanks to, to their influences and their, you know, their predecessors. That's the kind of art that, that I want to make. That's the kind of art I want to see in the world is, is art that recognizes its place in a kind of ecosystem uh, as opposed to just being sui generis out of the, 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 the genius brain of the individual.
0: Yeah, yeah. I actually listened to uh, your conversation with Robert McFarland this morning while. I was, yeah, I did it while walking uh, around a cemetery near my home. And it's a fairly old cemetery as far as old is defined in American terms. There are some uh, grave sites from the late 18th century, so Revolutionary War era. And. Seeing those gravestones while listening to mm-hmm. you and McFarlane talk about much deeper and older time, uh, I strongly recommend listeners to to Google Big Thing Think Again, uh, Robert McFarlane and listen to that conversation. It's really wonderful. He's so eloquent and you did a great job interviewing him, but it really brings to bear a cosmic view on the preposterousness of being, which I think was a phrase he used during the, during the talk. So really exquisite. Uh, one of my favorite episodes. Jason, I wanna go to Clever Creature. Clever Creature sees music and writing and conversing, coalescing into this lovely creative project, and congratulations on doing it. I think in a year where I hope people have learned more about self love and have developed routines to take good care of themselves. I think like having any creative output is is It's great. It's awesome. So congrats on that. Um, As far as I know, these are three pronounced modes of expression and artistry for you that you've been working on for a number of years. If you could share more granular details about what it's like weaving together these three modes of expression that can give rise to very different emotions, very different thoughts, very different questions and wonderings.
1: Sure. Um, Tell me
0: more about the weave of writing music and conversation in Clever Creature.
1: Sure, sure. So, I mean, in season one, I was writing the stories and the songs very close together, like often in the same day, like in the morning, I would write the story, the first draft of the story, and then I would work on the song. And so sometimes the stories and the songs ended up referring to one another uh, sometimes obliquely, sometimes directly. A single word might repeat. So for me, I guess I've always been afraid, in a way. I mean, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with um, structures and discipline. I've always been afraid of being locked into some kind of prison, just like being stuck in some some mode of existence or expression or or whatever that has that that has bored me. I'm a right. bit. I'm restless and I think there is a place to learn about patience as well and I am learning a lot about patience as the years go on but I also like color and I like variety and for me anyway like singing does something that writing will never do totally agree it's a very very different it's a very very different sort of fulfillment and joy and sharing And connection. And so like back in the day when I was writing songs, I was sharing them with friends and I was recording them and I had like some devoted listeners among friends, but I was too shy to do any kind of ongoing public performance. I did like, you know, one show at a cafe that was like an adjunct to CBGB's back when CBGB's was a thing in the East Village and that was all I could muster because I was just literally terrified. Like my fingers would shake when I got up on, on the stage. And so in part, this project is about like reclaiming all of those things, like bringing those other parts of how I like to work into the visible space that Think Again allowed me to create and to be able to just kind of like Put that all into one basket and say, Yeah, the, you know, all these things, all these things are things that, that I love to do and to share that out. And, you know, with the short stories, there's a sound design element, which involves some like music composition and some just playing with sounds, which I really, really enjoy and which is a relatively new mode of expression for me. And I feel like, You know, when I was making season one, having written and recorded a song one day would fill me up with a kind of like a manic energy, which would then feed back into the story writing. I mean, this was my fear. If I did just one thing, then I would become so like tunnel deep into it that I wouldn't be able to see the light, you know, so having having all of these modes to work with, and then varying from one day to the next what I was doing, um, that just, that put a lot of like, you know, surprising energy into the project that I felt fed into the other work that I was doing.
0: Mm, That's great. Thanks for that reflection. I think many creative people at the risk of generalizing have a kind of lust for life or, or joie de vivre, whatever expression you want to use, that can ultimately be metabolically expensive, which is to say you have those manic upswings and they come down and then you don't produce for a while. And I think a lot of people who are creating anything probably go through periods of guilt about non-production. And I think even among folks who who tend to be thoughtful and fairly self-aware, it's still, I think, fairly easy to experience the pitfalls of waiting for inspiration. We're, we're so inundated with tropes from pop culture about, you know, muses and inspiration and writing right. the right moment right. and things like writer's block even. And one has to be courageous and perseverant to just keep looking. I'm wondering on that note, sure. you, you alluded to this, you mentioned you're 48. So you have a few decades of creative practice under your belt. Can you sort of parse your creative thinking and your creative output in terms of, let's say, decade? Are, are there any major sort of changes that you think occurred in, in your thinking or in your doing around sure. creativity from teens to 20s, 30s into 40s now?
1: Sure. I mean, specifically going to your point about Waiting around for inspiration—that speaks to me very strongly—and and I think relates directly to the to, to your question. I mean, the first stuff that I did was like in high school. I was writing I was writing poems, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I was experimenting with forms like sonnets and free verse, and it was just fun at the time because I mean, I took it seriously, but it was like it was fun. Yeah, it's and funny then- how
0: like bad bad. Po- I mean, I don't know if your poetry was bad, but no, I think it was for a bad. lot of maybe it high, it like yeah. it feels like bad poetry is like a, a good step along the way of uh, a deepening creative... Practice. yeah yeah with
1: apology which with apologies due to all the you know significant <laughs> others girlfriends and boyfriends uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, of emerging artists yeah, who right. had to endure their their yeah. poems along the yeah. way but, but um but shout uh, out
0: to all past girlfriends for bearing <laughs> with us
1: <laughs> yeah exactly i'm i'm sorry becca um anyway then though i i'd got into acting and then I went to college for acting. I went to NYU for acting and acting was suddenly a, a very serious thing that I was supposed to be doing for the rest of my life. And what very quickly happened, although I didn't quite realize it at the time was that I couldn't be an actor. Like I was too, I just had too much going on psychologically. You know, you have to like kind of be able to bring up your emotions to the surface and share them out I was very inward in college um, in some ways, in other ways not. But I mean, when it came to like being able to like honestly share emotion on a stage, that became harder and harder for me. And so... You know, I was just tortured. Like, am I an actor? Am I not an actor? I'm supposed to be an actor. Where is? Why can I act today? You know. And then I was writing songs, um, and the songs were low stakes in a way, um, because th- they weren't what I was supposed, what my parents were paying a hundred thousand dollars or whatever it <laughs> was, you know, for me to do professionally, right? So I put a lot into those songs, and there was a lot of inspiration to go around at the time because my I was growing up a lot and a lot was happening in my life. And so there was never a sense of not having a song to write. I just wrote lots and lots of songs. You know, then in the professional years, you know, I would still write songs, but then it was like, well... Is this what you want to do? Are you going to put them out in the world? Well, if you're not going to, then what are you doing? Are you a hobbyist? Are you, you know, whatever, whatever. And meanwhile, just having to work a lot and having a very busy life and not having a ton of time, art became an inspiration only thing. So I would write songs every couple years, like when some songs would come to me, like I would just suddenly have a different feeling and then I would I would write I would write some things and record them. So. In a sense, it was kind of an asymptotic return through non creative or less creative, or I don't know, less authentically me creative jobs uh, from teaching middle school, which I could be a very creative job, but when you're meant to be managing a fairly rowdy classroom of 30 children, it's more of a ma- management job in some ways, which I am not, that's not. Who I am to the early work that I did at Big Think, which was more kind of behind the scenes editorial stuff to more public writing for Big Think to Think Again podcast and then to Clever Creature. Like so it's been coming back to public creative work in later adulthood has been about how do you not take it and yourself so seriously that you become um, crippled, that you become unable to say anything. I mean, in some ways that was the problem with songwriting. I was so afraid of the industry. I was so afraid of judgment, you know, in the very judgmental scene of rock and folk, you know, of like, am I cool, am I not cool, am I cool enough, whatever, that I never wanted to get up there in front of people. And so when it came to think again and suddenly I was making a weekly show where I had to um, speak to people, you know, very accomplished people every week, um, I very quickly had to have a conversation with myself, which was like, you know what, like. You either suck or you're great or you're somewhere in the middle or you're you're brilliant or you're an idiot, whatever, all those things that you are like, it's all going to be on there and you can cut some of it. But like fundamentally, that's going to be you out there and you can either do this or not. And if you want to do it, then just like let it be, you know, let it let like you don't have control over the perception or how brilliant you are that day or whatever, you know? And having that opportunity then has been like an enormous gift in my life to let go of some of that ego drive and open up to, like I said, to other people's ideas and to exist in the world sort of mostly, most of my warts and all. And so then with Clever Creature, I very deliberately made the decision you know, returning to like putting music out there in the world and, or maybe doing that in some cases for the first time, putting, putting stories out in the world, just not to allow myself to get too hung on, hung up on whether it was brilliant and just try to have fun, try to explore new territory, you know, and if the world has no interest, you know, and if I do this for X number of years and it's like no longer tenable to spend my time this way and like people don't want to hear it anyway, then so be it. Like, I can't control that.
0: Yeah, that's I I want to highlight that question that you pose to yourself, is this what you're going to do? Because I think for young people, broadly defined, perhaps I'm a young person, perhaps you and I are both young people, I guess it, it depends on who's looking at us, right? <laughs> um, I think that question for passionate, uh, creatively energetic young people, it poses this sort of paradox, which is, on the one hand, if you tell yourself, yes, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going I'm to commit fully to being an actor or to right. being a rock star or whatever, it's paradoxical because we think that there's liberation through betterment and furtherance in the medium, but going back to what you were saying earlier – that narrow commitment is a sort of imprisonment in, in a sense, too, because we have this lust for life and we want to have broadening experiences. We don't want to be 100% committed to one mode of expression. Right. And so I think that sort of liberation, imprisonment, uh, Janus-faced nature can be very paralyzing.
1: Yeah. And I think I think I think there are different kinds of artists. And I right. think like it's really important to be careful about who you're listening to, because lots of people have lots of opinions about what everybody should do.
0: Totally agree.
1: You know, and and I th- I think that there are there is the novelist who like knows that they want to be a novelist from the time they're 18 years old or 16 or whatever and that's what they do and they just like deepen and broaden within that within that lane and then and then there are artists like you know for season two of this show i was just talking to tim minchin who is a He's, you know, for anyone who doesn't know him, he started out as a kind of like piano comedian, very funny, offbeat, like singing these crazy and super witty and mordant songs, and then wrote all the lyrics to the Broadway musical and British musical Matilda, which was originally produced by the Uh, RSC, and is based on the Roald Dahl children's book, and wrote another musical, Groundhog Day, but now has made a television show called Upright, which he wrote, and he's one of the lead actors, and he's excellent. And I think that certain artists, like, if they can find a way to, to do that, you know, to expand themselves in all of those directions... I mean, those those are some of the people I I'm most fascinated by, and and kind of how I'd like to be in the world, but not not everyone's like that, you know.
0: Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I am quite reluctant to make normative claims on here. This is much more of a descriptive podcast, uh, which is to say, hey everybody, here's Jason. Here are some of his ideas, rather oh, right, than right. rather than get out your notebook and do exactly what Jason did in order to succeed. Um, right, but. I do think, you know, it's funny to have a sort of meta question about podcasting here. When I think about think again your previous project and for example the podcast on being with Krista Tippett, I don't know yeah. if you've ever checked yeah, out yeah, that I one. And it, yeah, me too. Me too. And even Clever Creature. I think for every one and those three podcasts all being quite different from each other, but I'm I'm grouping them together in the sense that they're sort of they don't seem to me to be to be looking for definitive answers or proclamations or rules or even norms necessarily. And I think for every one of those podcasts, there are a hundred Tim Ferriss-esque podcasts about, you know, how to make your life perfect if you do one, two, three, X, Y, Z.
1: I'm glad you mentioned Tim Ferriss, by the way, because I think he's a really interesting cat. He crosses both lines in interesting ways. Like sometimes he's extremely uh, normative and takeaway oriented and, and sometimes he's surprisingly um, interested in the journey um, and his work with psychedelics in particular and Buddhist meditation, you know, I, I find surprising it, it, in those ways, in that it's not always product oriented at all. He's always vexed me for that reason and and fascinated me because he is, is, I I did think he was that at first. I did think of him as the exemplar. Um, Anyway, I'm sorry, I interrupted your question. Please go ahead.
0: Oh, no, no, it's fine. What do you think it says about culture i feel like in the back of my mind i'm like oh the answer to this question is capitalism but let me just ask jason <laughs> and, see what, and see what he thinks well why is it that do you think for every one big think or on being or clever creature there are a hundred productivity uh, success maximization podcasts again is it just sort of reflective of the sort of broader hegemonic mainstream we find ourselves existing in or do you think uh there's more to it
1: yeah, 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 yeah. No, I've thought I've thought about this a lot and I certainly thought about it a lot while working at, at at Big Think because their business model moved more and more in the direction while I was there of, you know, here are the four takeaways that are going to make you less of a procrastinator or whatever. And I find that stuff really dispiriting because, you know, for the most part, it's not rocket science and it's not it's almost never something you haven't heard or thought of before you know it's it'll just be picked, packaged in a kind of a new way you know it's sometimes useful of course to think about these things about how to remember things better or how to organize your time you know i mean you know these are useful things to think about but yes i think the short answer is capitalism i think it's also this Thing whereby we like enthusiastically co create this fiction of capitalist value that the only thing that is valuable is the thing that is useful in, in a way that I can, you know, quantify exactly how it's going to benefit me and my life. I think that a lot of people out there, from the people making these podcasts. You know, of course, the networks that are promoting them, but also the legions of listeners, you know, and especially them, I think there's an enthusiastic cheerleading for this, this idea that that's how we're supposed to be spending our time. And that's what's worth spending our time on that. I, Yeah, that I think we need to like, I think we need to question. I think we need I think every single one of us, you know, and I think. Death is a great teacher in this regard should anyone unfortunately happen to lose someone that they love i do think it's like important to memento mori like to remember that like you are mortal and this is your time and like you know and that's not to say use it all you know productively and and to maximize your output it's to say like what was the quality of your life at any given Moment, Like, how do you feel? How did you feel? How did you relate to other people? Did you have time for your friend when they called? You know, of course, I suppose there are people that are like looking to stack up achievements, which they feel will outlive them or something, you know, but uh, but uh, achievements don't outlive us, really. I mean, they certainly they influence other people but when you're dead you're dead having a plaque on a wall doesn't doesn't mean a whole hell of a lot i think what what means a whole hell of a lot is this second the next second the second after that what were you aware of who were you were you in yourself how did you listen to other people? How did you talk to the person from whom you buy your groceries you know or the person you bumped into at the stoplight or you know the, all of those all of those moments of awareness, I feel like that adds up to who and who and what we are and we're doing ourselves a disservice if we just sort of blindly submit to this notion, this fear really that if we don't accumulate enough how-to tips quickly enough, then we're going to be left behind. Big caveat, which is to say I have lived a very privileged life. Like I came from, you know, I mean, I've struggled uh, in various ways emotionally and sometimes financially, but, you know, I came from an upper middle class background. I had opportunities. I was sent to college. I am not in a position to judge the decisions that somebody who is afraid that they're not going to be able to eat tomorrow because they like couldn't when they were a kid often i'm not in a position to to judge how they make those decisions about you know what ladders to climb and how quickly
0: yeah great riff and important caveat two thoughts in response to it and then perhaps one more question when contemplating outer space For instance, I think you can get to the same place that you're talking about with death being a good teacher. I think sometimes when you embrace, and I'm very much a novice at it, a sort of psychedelic-Buddhist stance, I think the fact that we are stardust, the fact that we are minute specks in an unknowable universe is not terrifying but freeing and uh, lightening and buoying, if that's a verb second, I think where I come down on the self-help world when, when it's unselfconsciously referred to as self-help, and that is the world Tim Ferriss came out of, I think the four-hour work right. week being sure. his first breakthrough book. And I, I totally agree with you. I've, I haven't been a regular listener, but I've certainly kept tabs on him over the years. And it's cool to see a guy who got so successful, so young, evolve. I think the four-hour work week came out at a time... I don't know when the website life hack was invented, but it right. seemed like it, it was of that sort of moment in evolving Internet culture where we became really interested in sort of sharing all of this knowledge about, quote, hacking our lives. But it's cool to see that I think in many ways he has wisdom and we don't we don't talk about wisdom so much as we talk about productivity and achievement and success. And right. Uh, right. good job, Tim. Right. I think you're getting for whatever my job. <laughs> I think <laughs> you're getting wiser. Um, I but think so, too. I guess where I come down on on unselfconsciously self-help content is that as you were saying I agree I think like a listicle with five good points none of which are particularly new or mind-blowing they could be really useful reminders and you could be like okay yeah this is I'm glad to be reminded of this but I think the the sort of scarlet letter of self-help content is that it often makes deep difficult sometimes daunting processes of self-understanding, self-discovery, self-compassion seem easy sure. and seem like a matter of rote memorization or repetition. And I just don't think that's true for most people. And
1: <laughs> I, again,
0: uh, I, right, it could be good to have reminders, but I think when it comes exactly. to selfhood, right. it's hard to just run a formula or an, or an algorithm for selfhood. Please, please respond to that. Uh, yeah, I have two thoughts
1: in response. One is that First of all this this came up in a conversation I had with Joseph Goldstein who's a teacher in the western theravada buddhist tradition where I was kind of making fun of what I called dharma light which was <laughs> sort of like you know self helpy buddhist content and I was try- trying to talk to him about Whether he felt that was helpful or harmful in the way that you're describing, that it pays lip service to things that are actually and does a kind of shallow gloss over things that are actually quite profound and and may take a lot of time to, to work through or understand. His response was, yeah, you know, it can be a window. He's like, I think it's a problem if it stops there. And he's 100% right. Because when I returned to Buddhism, like I had read Buddhist texts in my 20s. But when I returned to Buddhism as a like in my, I guess, 30s, it was by way of what you could see as very superficial apps like Headspace. But that led me to over time, what has become a deeply integrated understanding of Buddhist ideas and practice of Buddhism through lots of reading, lots of listening to Dharma talks, lots of going deeper into more, I don't know, maybe more original ancient forms of meditation, and just getting a a much more comprehensive sense of like what those tools are for and how to use them. And so I'm sort of in a way, grateful to have had that easy entry in the form of, of headspace. I mean, I think the guy Andy Puttycomb, who used to do most of the the meditations, I think he's very good. I think he is, in fact, deeply trained. The structure is a sort of a very capitalist incentive structure. You've unlocked the next level of meditation or whatever. But I, but I think, you know, I think there is authenticity there. Anyway, so that thought, you know, that you can proceed from the shallower to the deep as long as the shall- shallow is not misleading and as long as it points in the direction of its sources as opposed to claiming, erasing them.
0: Yeah, that's useful. Yeah, it's almost like acknowledging the shallow for the shallow. And exactly there are, th- there are things to be learned at different depths. And it's, exactly-, yeah. yeah, I like that. That's that's nice.
1: The last thing I was gonna say was about you mentioned a psychedelic perspective and like very specifically, um, and this is something I write about in the memoir, psychedelics have been extremely useful to me in my life first LSD and mescaline in college more recently ayahuasca but also psilocybin and there is a an understanding that I I sort of swallowed after college that oh because these things go deep quickly unlike something like, say, a lifetime of Buddhist practice, then they are shallow. It's the shortcut. It's the easy path or whatever, whatever. But I've actually come to believe that psychedelics used properly, used responsibly, and there's a lot of information out there now on what that means, both from an indigenous perspective and also in terms of the new psychedelic science as it's being practiced at Johns Hopkins and other places. Um, but when used responsibly and when the insights are processed, um, that it's actually, even though it's quick and intense and sort of compressed, it is as valuable as any other mode of growth I've encountered from meditation to psychiatry to any anything.
0: Tim Ferriss getting an unexpectedly large amount of love on this podcast today. Um, oh, yeah. I, I was listening to him recently. I think he was interviewing Dan Harris, who started an app called 10% Happier. And Tim mentioned an Aldous Huxley short story and Huxley talks about psychedelic experiences as a kind of buffet. He uses this food metaphor, which I think is apt given that the body naturally has a very good tolerance to a lot of these substances you're mentioning. And I should definitely uh, put an asterisk next to that where I'm um, not giving any advice here about drug use. Huxley talks about a psychedelic experience as being like a buffet where you have this smorgasbord of amazing food. And if you if there's a buffet of food that you like, it's amazing. You get some, such variety, such color, smells, tastes. But he says that you didn't prepare the food, which is important, so you didn't learn how to make it. Most people probably can't pay for a big fancy buffet
1: mm. all the
0: time. And one probably wouldn't want a buffet every day, given it's sort of uh size and sometimes uh gustatory intensity. I think that's a nice uh, analogy.
1: Yeah. I would only take sort of grave exception to the notion that it's problematic that you didn't make the buffet simply because like, I didn't make life. I didn't make death. I didn't, make, I didn't, make, I didn't make the universe that I might contemplate. And yet I can learn from all of those things. I think there's a, a strange bias in there. I I don't think it's a sufficient uh, indictment of any kind. As far as the like not every day, I mean, I guess that's debatable too, but obviously most jobs you can't go to and you wouldn't want to be taking psychedelics while at work work necessarily. (laughs) I mean, I think sacred is a reasonable way to think about them, to approach them with a certain reverence. Um, and to set up correct conditions and make sure you're in an environment that's safe and and all of those things. That's a good point. So yeah, yeah, not every day. Probably not at the Fish concert, although that can (laughs) be fun. (laughs) That can be fun. But if you're looking for actual like insight and growth, my prejudice is that you're not going to get it at the Fish concert. But maybe, maybe a little bit. I don't know. What can I say? Maybe you connect deeply to the music. So disregard that if you've had profound psychedelic experiences with with music.
0: Jason, Mark Gettlin has edited a textbook called In Living with Art. I think it's on its 10th or 11th volume. Mark Gettlin proposes six activities, services, or functions of art. And I'm just going to read them off to you. And I'd like to close with you telling me uh, what you like, what you don't like, what you find interesting, what speaks to you. So these are are the six activities, services, or functions of art as defined by Mark Gettlin. Number one, art creates places for some human purpose. Number two, creates extraordinary versions of ordinary objects. Number Uh three, art records and commemorates. Number four, it gives tangible form to the unknown. Number five, it gives tangible form to feelings. Number six, it refreshes our vision and helps us see the world in new ways.
1: Okay whenever whenever i hear a list like that my first thought is is that meant to be all the things that art does like or is that because i feel like all of those are certainly true i i don't know if all of them are true of every piece of art i feel like my brain is doing somersaults trying to or would do somersaults if i had that list in front of me trying to think about whether you know any given piece of art conforms to all six of those criteria or whether this is meant to say that like some art does like all art does some of these things
0: I think it's that
1: okay the latter okay all right so yeah i mean that that all sounds accurate to me it's hard for me to hold the whole list in my head i like the i like the one about commemorating recording and commemorating because i think you know the art i love anyway it records and commemorates the specificity of something. It can be the specificity of what the artist happens to be imagining at that moment, which may, which is, of course, the product of their experience. So in a sense, it's a commemoration of their own, their life and the things that they've seen and, and, and felt. I like the idea that, and maybe it's partly because I was talking to the poet Ross Gay today, whose poem Beholding, Uh, which is two words, beholding, but also, you know, elides into beholding is very much about the ways in which we hold our experience um, and the way that art, I think, can do that in a way that celebrates and uplifts life that essentially just by showing it as it is sometimes celebrates its preciousness, its ephemerality. That I feel like is the great kind of ethical work of the the artist is showing taking the time to try to show those ideas those those people those instances those images those feelings in a way that others can feel and and that you know in a sense lives forever because anytime anyone revisit revisits it it comes back to life so I mean of, of the six that one spoke most directly to me but then if i had the list and i had a couple of days to you know sit with it i'm sure it would blossom forth in in other ways
0: yeah yeah it's funny it's almost like giving a definition of art isn't a particularly artful thing to do <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i well you just have to be careful and make sure that you're not that that you're leaving space for for whatever art might become you know
0: Right. Not to be exclusionary. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Jason, um, our conversation has marked the transition from there being no snow on the ground in the Scranton Wilkes-Barre area to, as I look out my window, uh, some amount of accumulation, it looks like, how's it looking in Queens? Can you, are there windows where you are?
1: I'm looking out the window. Um, the street is, the street is still clear But I but it is snowing. Um, And I will after this call, I will take my puppy dog, Lyra, who is seven months old and is enormous. She's an enormous uh, puppy Um, out into what will be her first experience ever of of snow. Oh, wow.
0: So, what a lovely experience. That sounds so nice.
1: So I, I I, will get to experience it anew through her canine eyes and paws.
0: Jason Gotts, GOTS, for listeners, as you'll be able to glean from this conversation, you do all kinds of cool stuff. I particularly do recommend Clever Creature. Any other sort of final notes to beam out to the audience, Jason?
1: Oh, I'm grateful for your presence and your listening and your very, very thoughtful questions and, and ideas. I think you're doing a great thing with the show.
0: Thank you so much.
1: The easiest way to find out what I'm up to is uh, on my website, jasongots.com, And there's a little newsletter pop up and I, I, or it's, I guess, for email contact, I very infrequently write emails, but when something big happens, I do. So if you find that you're interested in what I'm doing and you want to be in the loop then that's that's the best way.
0: Okay, cool. Well, thanks again Jason and uh enjoy experiencing the world anew through canine eyes.
1: I right, and thank you very much, Pat.
0: Take care, Jason. Bye. Okay, take care.